Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and today we are talking to Annie McManus, the DJ, podcaster and author who has written her second novel, The Mess We're In, which explores music and coming of age and the experience of being Irish in England. It's funny, like when you're an Irish person abroad, I can only speak from my own experiences here. I never really felt like I had to assimilate because I always had this caveat of oh, just go home. You know what I mean? It, it, this isn't my real home because I have a real home where my family is. Well, like that's home. This is just somewhere I am visiting. But then once you've been visiting somewhere for longer than you lived in your actual home, you know, there's got to be a point where you accept that this is your home, you know? That was Annie McManus there, or Annie Mac as she is also known, and we'll be hearing more from her in a moment. But just a couple of things to mention this week. I have been watching, as I'm sure you have, the developments in the Annie McCarrick case. Uh, speaking of another Annie, she disappeared 30 years ago and Gardy say, having upgraded the case from a missing persons investigation to a murder investigation, they are now re-examining the actions and movements of two men, including rechecking accounts and statements they gave back in 1993 when Annie McCarrick went missing. This is from a report this week in the Irish Times by Connor Lally. He said investigators are now focused closely on the men who are being treated as suspects in a bid to determine if any discrepancies or shortcomings in the information they gave to detectives at the time are now seen as problematic. The examination includes the accounts of their movements on the day in 1993 that Annie McCarrick vanished and the following day, including alibis and the people who contributed to those alibis. However, while there was now a significant focus on them, other avenues of investigation are still being explored. And it's just incredible when you think of all those cases of missing women in Ireland. I'm thinking of Fiona Pender, Jojo Dullard. There's a long list of them. And let's hope that the upgrading of this case to a murder investigation leads to it being solved finally. Annie McCarrick's family and all the families of these women. It's just such a horrible thing to live with, especially when there's no closure or resolution or justice. And speaking of justice, our woman of the week has to be E. Jean Carroll, who was in New York this week, very happy because a jury in a civil trial over her allegation that Donald Trump raped her in a New York department store in 1996, they found that he had actually abused her and defamed her. And she said this week that she's overwhelmed with joy for women. She told NBC's Today programme on Wednesday, a day after the verdict was handed down in Manhattan, I'm overwhelmed, overwhelmed with joy and happiness and delight for the women in this country. As I said, Trump was found to have defamed Miss Carroll as well as um, having sexually assaulted her, but not to have raped her. So that was found that he didn't rape her and he was ordered to pay around 
five million dollars in damages and Miss Carroll said it wasn't about the money. She didn't even hear the money. It's about getting my name back. And that's what we accomplished. She also was very interesting on the fact that she had kind of demolished the concept of this perfect victim, because when the attack happened back in 1996, she didn't go to the police. Instead, she swore friends to secrecy and she basically just tried to cope for years and with the devastating effect on her life. And she said before yesterday, there was a concept of the perfect victim. The perfect victim always screams, always reports to the police, always makes note when it happened. And then her life is supposed to fold up and she's never supposed to be happy again. And yesterday we demolished that concept. It's gone. It's gone. And I'm overwhelmed with happiness for the women of the country. It's really not about me so much. It's about every woman. And indeed, she she gave a very powerful tweet um, during the week, which I saw. And she just said, hey, ladies, uh, a little message for you. And then it was just a big we won. So she's really embracing this for for all women who've been in that position where they've been told that they should have reacted in a certain way to the trauma of being sexually abused. You should have screamed. You should have ran immediately to the police which as we know, and which everybody should know, there is no textbook reaction to that traumatic event. So E. Jean Carroll is our woman of the week. And uh, I just love how she has embraced this result for, for all women. And hopefully that has brought her closure and peace and uh, she can move forward with her life in a good way. And I just really admire the bravery of her and of, for, of all women who who push through um, despite everything. And of course, Trump is out there now mocking her, which you wouldn't expect anything else uh, from such a disgusting, misogynistic man who has been found also, as we know now, uh, to be a sexual abuser by a, a civil court in New York. Now, Annie McManus is an author, broadcaster and DJ. Over her 20-year career in the arts, she has made a huge impact, but she stepped away from her radio career a couple of years ago to become a writer and her Sunday Times best-selling novel, Mother Mother, was published in 2021 to critical acclaim. Uh, she's also written in The Guardian, The Irish Times and The Independent and she regularly publishes articles also on her own blog, AnnieMcManus.com. She also has a podcast Changes with Annie McManus, where she chats to writers, artists, and other fascinating people from all walks of life about how they have navigated change in their lives. Many of you will have listened to her on BBC Radio One, where it was always great to hear her Dublin accent among all those English ones. She had millions of listeners, but a couple of years ago, she gave up that job, as I said, in search of a better work life balance with her two young sons and husband in London, where she lives. I met her in real life a couple of weeks ago because I was interviewing her for the Irish Times Saturday magazine. We met in an Irish bar in North London called Maggie's, not far from her home. So we referenced that meeting a couple of times. But we also talk about stuff we didn't get to in that meeting, such as the fact that she has a macaroni cheese named after her called, of course, the Annie Mac. Uh, what an achievement. I think that's like better than many accolades you could ever get. We also talked about her second novel, The Mess We're In, which is a brilliant coming of age tale and an exploration of being Irish in London. We talked about her turning down an MBE uh, last summer, politely turning it down and about adapting to a new working world outside of her radio career. She is a great person and I think you're really going to enjoy this chat with the wonderful Annie Mack. Annie, it's great to talk to you. Uh, are you at home in London now? Roisin, I am. I'm sat on my sofa. My cat Minnie is Sparko oh. beside me after 
having the zoomies all morning and running in circles really fast. She's now, she's now having a nap and everyone's left. And I got back from America late last night. So I'm a bit all over the gaff. I'm a bit okay. jet lagged and, and, and discombobulated, but I hope I'll be able to speak cohesively for you today. You'll be fine. What were you doing in America? I was playing a wedding. <laughs> what? That's so cool. Yeah, I got flown over to play this very lovely wedding on Saturday night in a place called St. Michael's in Maryland. But I brought my husband as my tour manager and um, we had a couple of days beforehand in DC together and just made a bit of a long weekend of it, actually. It was really nice, really cool. You can actually go to America, it's funny, isn't it, for four or five days and it's grand. It's grand. I mean, DC was, I mean, I think the flight was six hours, 20 minutes home last night. It was, it was nothing. It was a bit of work and a film. And there you were, a celebrity DJ flown in. <laughs> did you have a rider? That's never happened before, I have to say. Um, I did have a rider. What was on your rider? Oh, well, my rider is, um, there's vodka, there's white <laughs> wine, there's uh, white claw, there's Nurofen Express, there's Baraka, <laughs> there's um, tea, lots of, um, lots of beers, lots of waters, kettle it's not I've really toned it down a couple of Marks and Spencer salads I've really toned it down over the years and I have different (laughs) levels because I don't really drink at my gigs anymore so I have a rider that's just the food and and the tea and the water as well and tell me did they want you coming and doing all your music that you like or did they have very specific requests well that was my worry I was I'm not really (laughs) sure what to do here why are you booking me for a kind of dancey set no I just played classic wedding fair you know, everything from Taylor Swift to Beyonce to Jackie Wilson, David Bowie, Talking Heads, Fleetwood Mac. Like, I love those type of sets. They're, they're so fun for me. So I did all of that, basically. God, that is brilliant. Does that happen a lot? People ask you to do their weddings. I'm sure all, they ask you. It's not <laughs> all the time. But yeah, I don't often say yes. <laughs> there has to be good enough offer for you to. Yeah, I guess so. But also I would play friends weddings and relatives weddings and stuff. But yeah, I haven't got into the proper wedding circuit yet. OK, well, we'll talk about DJing later and all your music stuff. But I want to talk to you about your second brilliant novel, which is called The Mess We're In. And it's absolutely wonderful. And as someone who, uh, as a young person, sort of landed in London uh, back in the day and was trying to make their way and lived in some questionable uh, accommodations <laughs> and all of that and had a lot of crazy adventures and sometimes I look back and I think I can't believe I actually got through those <laughs> things some weird situations you end up in the book mm. is all about that it's about a young woman Orla who's 20 21 she lands in London she's living with her best friend Nima she's living with a band called Shiva mm-hmm. who are on the up and she's living in this quite disgusting house uh, <laughs> in Kilburn with mice in it and mould uh, but there's lots of drugs to sort of uh, yeah. distract them from all of that. Yeah. Tell us about the inspiration, because you would have landed in London as a young woman too. Yeah, so I think, so this, this book is my second book, and my first book, Mother Mother, upon finishing it and talking about it and doing these type of conversations, the first question everyone seemed to ask was, where did this book come from? And I didn't have an answer for that for Mother Mother, because the context of writing that book was, I did a writing course and just kept kind of writing the book after starting it in the writing course. And I I hadn't really thought about anything then apart from finding time to write. So this time the context was I'd left Radio 1 and I'd, and I'd given myself a bit more time. And I really wanted to consider why I was writing the book more and what was meaningful enough to me to want to write about. So um, 
I knew I wanted to write about being Irish in England and I wanted to write about the music industry, having just stepped out of it and having a bit of perspective on it. But I also wanted to write about these few years in my life that were really formative, which was similar to you, those years of leaving Ireland, coming to England, arriving in London, starry-eyed, full of big dreams and ambitions, living with my brother's band, uh, which I did. And, um, and, and I knew that those years were really... Yeah, they were just really formative and they, they, they were really special to me. And I didn't remember a lot of them. My memory's decimated. So I wanted to use the book as a way to really dig into those years and try and remember them. But also to explore them and also to explore them in the benefit of hindsight now that I've been in London for over 20 years. And ask myself the questions like, you know, why were you so eager to leave Ireland? You know, you, you left without looking back. Why was that? At what point did... Did London become home? How did your concept of home change? Um, the people and the, and the kind of, I suppose, the friends that you make in a big city becoming your family, the sense of you building a family around you that, that you need or maybe don't need, depending on what your state of mind is at the time. So, so, so many things like that. Um, part of it was about remembering and part of it was then once remembering fictionalizing it hugely and dramatizing it and embellishing it and exaggerating it and making it to a really fun fictional book. Yeah. And you mentioned there that you've been there over 20 years. So you came to that sort of point in your life where you've been in England longer than you had been yeah. in Ireland. And that was a bit of a, a crossroads because I, I should say uh, there's a print interview I did for the magazine on Saturday. People might have read it. Uh, we met in London a few weeks ago uh, yeah. in, a, in a, an Irish bar, which we'll talk about in a sec. But uh, you you were saying that that crossroads was an interesting one for you and got you thinking about all that those questions of home. Yeah, it really did. Like, it, it's funny, like... When you, when you are an Irish person abroad, I can only speak from my own experiences here. I never really felt like I had to assimilate because I always had this caveat of, oh, just go home. You know what I mean? It, it, this isn't my real home because I have a real home where my family is. Well, like That's home. This is just somewhere I am visiting. But then once you've been visiting somewhere for longer than you lived in your actual home, you know, th there's got to be a point where you accept that this is your home, you know? And I think having kids really does that too because they grow up and it's all they know and they're so comfortable in their Englishness, my, my children. And, and yes, they know their mammy is Irish and they know that they're half Irish and they get dragged to Ireland on the ferry every year and all of that. But, you know, I suppose there's points that really remind you of that, like when the Euros are happening and when they're, they've got their English flag or whatever, um, they're supporting English football teams you just at some point have to like you have to accept that this is home for them and you've built this life and it's a wonderful life we've been so lucky to have this life here in England um so I suppose there's a lot of the book as well is, is, is a lot of me trying to kind of reconcile the fact that this could be home now you know yeah. this could be this could be I think this you're could home, be home. I, think I think you're I'm literally home, home. Oh, God, <laughs> I know but look it's a lovely home and you still have the other home maybe you've two homes you know like I've, I've been obsessed <laughs> with this guy that this guy Gary Dunn who runs the London Irish Centre over here yeah he sent me a link to this photographer called Stephen Reeves 
He's okay. brilliant. So what he does is, I don't know if you follow the Humans of New York Twitter account. I, I did a while ago, yeah. yeah. And it's quite similar to that. As well. Yeah, mm. he, he just takes photos of people, normally older people, and you see this portrait of them and then you hear their story. But he did a series for the London Irish Centre, which is going to be an exhibition. And it's all obviously people who attend the Irish Centre, who are part of that community. So it's Irish people who moved to London and who stayed there. So obviously I was obsessed with this because I'm, I'm always obsessed with why people stay in England and what makes them stay and how they feel about home. And there was a running kind of pattern all the way through of all of the different people that they were very content to be in London. They were very happy. They were like, this is our life. This is why we're here. You know, there was a sadness and a loneliness about them, no doubt. You know, a lot of them had loved ones that passed away or whatever, but none of them were regretful about not going home. And that was really bolstering for me, actually. It was lovely. One of them said something like, um, I'm, I'm a foreigner here, but I'm also a foreigner in Ireland. And I'd rather be a foreigner here. And it was like, Very wow, that is really interesting. Because I suppose, A, there's a lot more foreigners in the UK, but there's something more, I suppose, um, painful about feeling dislocated in the country that you're supposed to feel is home, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think belonging is one of the big themes in your book. And as well as the music and the messiness and the drugs and all of that stuff, there's another beautiful thread running through it because Orla gets a job in an Irish bar called Fahis. Sure. And while she's working there, she gets to know these uh, older, usually men who are there pretty much every day in this bar and, and their stories. So the story of the Irish in, in London who kind of came post-war, whose stories aren't necessarily always the best, who maybe weren't as happy, but then didn't get a chance to go back home and, yeah. and are feeling in this in-between place. It's really well done in the book. And I think you you thought about that a lot. You read that book, An Unconsidered People. Sure. Um, why did you want to look at that side of things? I mean, it's really great. Well done in the in the book. Yeah, I think I've always been really interested in Irish pubs over here. They, they it, and interested in my attitude and opinion to those. So I would very much have been in the same way as Orla was when she comes to London and gets this job in Fahis, where she's like, why do you always go on about Ireland? Why are you obsessed with other Irish people? And like, like, and she's like, why wouldn't I want to go out with an Englishman to them? When they were like, would you not go out with a good Irishman? You know, it's, it's, she's, she's just looking out, looking out, looking out, looking ahead, looking forwards. And all they do is look back. And I was very much like that, but... I think that I found upon writing this book and really developing this kind of feeling of kinship with the older generation that I'm getting more like them as I get older. Like, I just <laughs> want to go to the Irish bar all the time. You were there. You know what it's yeah. like. I love chatting with them. I love hearing about their lives. And I feel, I suppose, a little bit similar to them. There's a, year, there's a sense of longing and a sense of yearning for maybe an Ireland that doesn't really exist, you know, that, that in my head it exists. Um, but I'm lucky, you know, and I, I'm so lucky compared to them, as you say, because first of all, the context of me leaving was not because I had to. I didn't have to go over here and make money and send it home to my 14 brothers and sisters. I, I left because I wanted to, to explore and have an adventure. And um, also I'm able to go back whenever I want. I'm really lucky I can nip over all the time. I book the flights ahead so they're affordable and I go back all the time. And I do have a relationship with Ireland that is rich and constant, but it's always as me, as the visitor. I am the visitor there. And I've been the visitor for so long that I can't imagine what it would be like 
to be anything different now. Mm. You mentioned the pub we went to. You live in a place called Kensal Rise, which is not too far from Kilburn, where the book is set yeah. in, in a lot. The bar that, that Orla works in is in Kilburn. But we met in the place called Maggie's Bar, which is, I, I mean, I have lived in London, but I don't think when I lived in London, I ever went into an Irish bar. So I was fascinated walking in there. Like there was racing on from Town on the telly. <laughs> there was, you know, you just, it was, I could recognise the faces of the people almost. Like I could see the kind of people they were, you know, just there were a lot of older men sitting on their own or sitting mm. in a few groups. And, and then this woman, Maggie, who runs the place, I think she's from Clare, um, which is great as well to see an Irish woman running a bar because it's kind of unusual. Yeah. But you, you you mentioned there that that wasn't somewhere you um, would have gone to a lot, but it was like kind of during the pandemic, you started to get more into your local community than you had been. So it, it was always somewhere I popped in for a pint on Paddy's Day, you know, and, and kind of used it in that way. But it actually, it wasn't the, it, it was, well, I wrote the book in the pandemic, but it was the book that brought me to Maggie's. And I think that's the beauty of this whole thing. I haven't really processed it yet but the book brought me to Maggie's because because I wanted order to have a job in an Irish bar and I went to some bars over in Kilburn and kind of spoke to a few people and sat and observed and then I realized I have one right on my doorstep and that it's called Maggie's and I knew it was run by a woman called Maggie and, and there's a female landlord in in all in the book so I thought I, sh- I should go and speak to an Irish female landlord or landlady and um she was brilliant and we kind of saw each other regularly and she told me about her life and she told me about her coming to England, the context of her being there. And then she told me in great detail about what it's like to run a pub, an Irish pub in London. And she was so helpful and so informative. And in coming to the pub to to, to kind of see her and to learn from her, I then kind of fell in love with the pub a bit and started coming more and more and more to the point where now it's, the place where we're having the book launch. And um, I don't know, I, I think it's probably my favourite bit of writing is those bits that let you explore humanity and get to know people and get inside people's heads. And I made some amazing friends out of Mother Mother. And I feel like with this one as well, I've, I've kind of reconnected with people that I haven't spoken to in 20 years and also made some new friends. And that stuff means the world. And I think that on top of being in my mid-40s, having this more space in my life to think about where I want to be and, and, and what kind of life I want to live. Community, as you say, keeps coming back. I keep coming back to that. And I suppose I want to, I want to commit to living in London now and take away that kind of underlying excuse for not committing of like, oh, sure, I could go home and just be like, okay, this is, this is where I am. This is where my kids are from. This is... This is where I'm at right now and I should really get stuck in and, 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 you know, try and contribute to the community a bit more, I suppose. To give people an idea of how much you've got stuck in, get, tell me about that recent visit to Maggie's with your whole family, with your two boys, I think your partner as well, your husband as well. And uh, your your youngest was sitting up at the bar. Like <laughs> it, was just, it was just me and the two boys who have oh, grown. You and the two boys. Who've grown, well, the oldest boy loves Maggie's. The youngest boy, not as much. But um, he's only six, so he's not very good at just sitting about. Whereas exactly. the, oldest, the oldest one likes likes watching the football. But yeah, so we just go in and... Maggie was there, which she not she she often isn't there. Um, so it was nice to see her. I sat down with her and had a pint with this guy called Mick as well, a Tipperary man who's always there. And my youngest sat up at the bar on a high stool with his J2O and his Pringles and just stayed there for half an hour, like talking to himself like an L one, like 
And we were just laughing our head off at him. And then my oldest one was down in the corner playing darts with a regular. And it just felt like, it just felt so lovely to me and like pr- profoundly emotionally fulfilling the fact that we had, we, it felt like we fit in there, you know? There's something about that Irish pub which validates you as a as an immigrant, as a first generation immigrant, because it's the one place that you do fit because everyone else is like you. They're all misfits. They're all in-betweeners, you know? That's the place that you feel most seen and heard. So when when the, my kids were there too and I was sitting with the regulars, it just felt like, okay, this feels like home. This feels like what home can feel like, you know? And that's a lovely realisation, I suppose. And you were saying to me that uh, your husband doesn't drink alcohol. So in a way you think maybe he wouldn't like it, but actually it's a bit like a community centre more than a pub, isn't it? So he doesn't mind it either, does he? No, he really likes it. And we would go there now if we had, we have a childminder once a week on Thursdays. So if we don't Very have anything... Very exciting. That's oh, a good... So are you, are, you're one of those great couples that say, date night, we're going to do this yeah. every week. I'm very, I admire you. Yeah, well, no, it's... Listen, it's not every week, Roisin, because it's normally he works late and I work late. But when we don't have anything in and we haven't planned anything, then I would I would drag us down there. And and he, he, he would always, like, rather stay at home. But I would drag him down. And then once we're there, we have a great time. And it's like, you know, they don't believe in a dimmer switch in Maggie's... It's bright light all the time. There's a faint smell of bleach. That there's not music. It's always just a telly. It's it's a real. It's a proper pub, you know. And um, but you always see the same people, and there's there's a real reassurance in that, you know, seeing the same faces and knowing that you're going to walk in and give people a nod and know their name. It's nice because yeah, after I met you, I went down to the hipster pub. Uh, to meet my friend and it was totally different vibe like it yeah. was all the you know jam jars and the you know yes. the, whole, the whole thing but yeah. equally they were both equally great and what's yeah. the name of the, the hipster one that I went to then so there's remember. is it called the Whippish or the Chamberlain it was the one that had just been done up that you told me the Chamberlain to go to on the, yeah. yeah the Chamberlain yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very nice mm. uh, but you told me also that Kensal Rise where we met was the setting for the first series of Motherland which I thought was amazing yeah and you so you almost recognised when you watch Sharon Horgan's Motherland, you can see all those people, like they all are very familiar. I mean, I guess in anything like that, everyone is exaggerated to high heaven, but I can definitely see characteristics of those characters in the school moms. But I think everyone can, which is why Motherland is so effective because you'll always see someone at the school gates that reminds you of someone from Motherland, always. And I love that now when you meet your sort of fellow parents from the school gate, you don't go to the hipster places. You actually bring them to Maggie's now, don't you? Well, this is something that's happened recently. There's a group of school mums. Like I've always been, I think it's part of my whole thing where like, oh, I'm not really going to, you know, I've been really busy with work. I don't know whether this is, I'm going to live here for good. I've never really embraced the school mum thing until recently. And I found a little crew that I really like. And we started going for drinks every fortnight and going to different pubs around Kensal. And then eventually we did Maggie's one night on my suggestion and we've gone back there ever since. We really like it because you don't ever see anyone you know. <laughs> They're not Irish people though, no, are they? No, 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 no. It's just a haven. It feels like a haven. There's a, it's like a completely different side and level of society than in any of the other pubs. Um, so it feels it feels like you're going somewhere else than Kensal Rise in a way. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, look, let's talk about the other side of you. We'll come back to the writing in a bit. Um, but you were in a, an amazing job for 17 years at the BBC with Radio 1. You had a huge following and you decided almost a couple of years ago, I think it's two years in July, is that right? Right, um, yeah. To to leave and because you wanted to go, sort of go in a different direction and you wanted to downsize your life slightly, which is a huge move. And I always think, I always admire people who kind of get out of things when they're not pushed, if you know what I mean. Not that I'm saying you were going to be pushed, yeah, but you know yeah. what I mean, that you made that decision yourself. Tell us a bit about coming to that huge decision because you're someone with millions of listeners, with a huge profile, um, almost like living the dream, I suppose. And then you looked at your life and said, okay, I need to change a few things. So I guess it's good to look at it in context, which is that I had been there for 17 years, Roisin. It had been there for a long time. And Radio 1 is a youth station. And yes, it has a history of really cultivating its DJs and some DJs managed to last there well into their 60s, 70s. Eight, you know, Annie Nightingale, for example. Pete Tong is in, well into his 60s now, still there. So some people can make it through and, and they do that really legitimately and they and it suits them and it's fine. For some reason, I kind of felt a bit like I knew I had to get out at some point, I, I, I knew that I wanted to try and do something different, but I hadn't been able to pinpoint what it was and, and what it would be. And I had been very, very, very busy from when I had kids, which was at 34 when I had my first kid, because I tried to kind of not let the kids stop the work. And I tried to keep doing all the work and keep growing and all of that whilst being a mom. And I did succeed for my first kid. He came along when I was 34, like right in the thick of the peak of, I suppose, all of my my work. About when he was a year and a half, I started a festival in Malta. Everything was growing. And then when I had my second kid, I was 38. And after the first year, two years of his life, I turned 40. And I suppose that's the point when a kid is around two that you kind of come up for air a bit, I suppose. They start sleeping through, everything's a bit easier. And it was around then that I that I kind of knew that I didn't want to keep working in that way. I wanted to see my kids more at night. So my job was on Radio 1 was weeknights, Monday to Friday, uh, which meant that I didn't really see my older kid. Um, I didn't see either kids for dinner or for bath or, or in the weeknights. And when I DJed at the weekends, I didn't see them at nighttime either then. So I just wasn't really seeing them as much as I wanted to. And they were young and I knew that that time was precious. So that was a really big thing. On top of that, 
I was trying to secretly squirrel away time to write and write this novel. And I knew, even though it hadn't been published or I didn't even know it could be published at that point, I just knew how good it felt. And I knew that learning, which was something I hadn't done for a long time, my mind had been dormant in a way because I'd been doing the same job, but, but for a long time and it was fulfilling and it was interesting, but essentially it was the same thing. I realised how good it felt to, to, to kind of wake my mind up again and get into learning something. Um, so yeah, it was a kind of combination of that, learning to write, doing that course, starting the book, and also the second kid being two, the, the older kid being into school and realising that with him being in school, I just wasn't seeing him and I needed to see him. So it was those two things. And it... it it was interesting because when, when I chose to leave radio, initially my instinct was to not talk publicly about it being anything to do with being a mum and having yeah. kids. Because there was something inherent in me that was like, I don't want to make it about it looking like a cop-out because I'm a mum in my 40s copping out of a career. It very much wasn't that. I was doing. I was changing my work. I wasn't stopping my work. But I did force myself to do it. And I'm really glad now because I had spent a lot of my life working life, working really hard to not talk about being a parent or a mum, really like sidelining that and keeping it all about me as a professional business person, you know. And it was so liberating just to say, I'm, I'm a parent and I, and I want to see my kids. The end, it's that simple, you know. It was very, very freeing. And something about the honesty of that, I suppose, allowed me to feel braver at the time and yeah just um just just keep going I suppose in 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 following a sense of truth and and looking for the the really truthful things that I wanted to do and keep doing them um so I changed a lot in in that period I changed a lot of how I worked who I worked with and and it felt really good and no regrets about any of it. The thing is, you knew when you, you told me before that when you rang and made that phone call to say you were leaving, the feeling afterwards was absolute that you'd done the right thing, which is great because it would have been terrible if it was the opposite. Yeah, but I, I always think that when you make a big decision like that, it's after, just after you kind of execute that decision is, you kind of know. Um, <laughs> but like it was, Roisin, it was very, you know, it, it wasn't immediate. It wasn't a uh, impulsive decision, which is rare for me because no. I am quite impulsive. I did think about it for a long time and I had launched this podcast and I had been writing a book. So I'd done enough hours of writing to know that it was something I wanted to dedicate more time to. So it, it wasn't a rash decision. So by the time I'd made it, I was, it was really thought through. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because your podcast is all about talking to people about changes in their lives. We've just been talking about that big change. I mean, th- yeah. you're really curious about that, aren't you? How people, what what are the changes in people's lives that send them off in a totally different direction? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And weirdly talking to people about change and how they've navigated change or or kind of enabled change has really helped me become less fearful of it, you know, and actually lean into it lots more and... It's just made me realise that, um, you know, life is just so unpredictable. You never fucking know what's going to happen. You do not know what's around the corner. So you have to try and live it as truthfully and as and, and kind of um, and be as open to to things as you possibly can. And I suppose it's it's given me an education in learning about all different facets of change. And it's also given me great friends. Like the podcast is 
you go for the jugular on it because you're talking about the most meaningful periods in people's lives. So you end up, it ends up being quite intimate and you share something with people. And yeah, I've made some really lovely friends out of it that I still see and I really value that. Yeah, I mean, it, we should say like you're still working very hard. You're, although you're out of uh, BBC Radio One, you have yeah. a lot on. Um, but it's a bit more solitary now, and you're quite an extroverted person. So how has that been? That's been a, a bit of getting used to, to be honest. And I have to find ways to make that work for who I am. So rattling around the house all day on my own is something I can do, but I have to be really disciplined about my state of mind. So I have to exercise first or I have to make sure that I have people to see coffees, walks, lunches, any just something in the day where I can connect with someone and be out of my head. Because I think if I have too many consecutive days just on my own at home writing, I go a bit mad, basically. Mm-hmm. Unless, that is, I'm in that lovely sweet spot of being in the flow state and you're writing the writing is pouring out of you and it's all you want to do. And in when that happens, time disappears. You know, it's, it could be six hours just gone. And that's my favourite bit of writing. But that's, I'd say, about 20% of it. And the rest of it is editing and researching and editing and fact-checking and all of that stuff that takes discipline, I suppose. Mm. Um, going back to the concept of home, because you talked there about booking your flights in advance, you know, so that they're cheaper. And you you said something I thought was really great, that you go home sometimes just for a day and a night. Like you schedule these visits back to your parents where you get to spend this quality time on your own with them without the kids which I think is fantastic. Yeah, so that's something I did. I started recently, um, I, I was kind of going on and on to my husband about moving home and what we should do and all of this. And he was like, why don't you just go home on your own? Just go and see them. So I did. And yeah, I go on a Thursday and then morning and then I come back Friday, kind of early afternoon. And it's just brilliant because we, there's no kids. It's like, you can sit and have one, two, three cups of coffee in a row, no distractions. You get to really chat and hang out and do jigsaws and bring my mom down to the shopping centre to do some shopping and walk. I don't know. It's just this really quality time that is probably the equivalent of about a week at home with the kids in terms of the amount of time you get to spend with the parents. So it's something that's really helped and it's really scratched the itch of wanting to come home for good. And Mm. I can, as long as I'm able to keep doing that and and kind of make space for it to happen more or maybe for longer periods, I think, as my parents get older, I think, I hope it will be sustainable. Mm. I was saying in the article that I wrote and and something that I found interesting was people say to you a lot that you seem to really like yourself, which and Mm. some people say are very surprised by that, like a woman liking themselves and having confidence. And when I asked you about that, you were... why, Roisin? Why are they... What's going on? I like myself. Why is it mad? (laughs) Why is it an anomaly for a woman to like herself? What the fuck is wrong with this world? If that's a remarkable thing. I know. It's ridiculous. But I loved what you said about that confidence and where you got it, because you really did credit your parents a lot with that. They seem to be great people for kind of... You know, the best parenting, I, th- I think, is not putting your stuff onto your kids and really letting them to grow into the people that they're supposed to be. That's the kind of golden bit that sometimes is hard for people who are maybe doctors and really want their kids to be doctors or, you know, yeah. put their stuff onto them. But they seem to have been very good at that. And she had four kids under five yeah. in those short space of time, which is pretty manic. 
Pretty manic. So I think, you know, I think even the most well-intentioned parents in the world end up putting their shit on their kids. It's very hard not to. I think in my case, I was the fourth of four in five years. So by the time I came along, they were just trying to keep me alive. You know, there was no, it's <laughs> no, it's no time for putting anything on me. So in that regard, I was left alone in a good way to just figure out who I was. And I was, it was a noisy and a chaotic and, a, and, a, and an amazing family environment to grow up in. My, my brothers and sisters were a huge influence on me as they always are. Um, so I was able to kind of pick and choose which parts of them, music, clothes, whatever, that I wanted to kind of adopt for myself. Um, and yeah, I don't know, like my mom is always very calm and bookish and smart and unassuming, but just very wise. And I, th- I look back at my childhood and, and teenage years with her and she was always the kind of quiet, wise person in the room who after all the histrionics would say the thing that would make the most sense, you know. Um, she's very good like that. And then my dad is a really practical guy who will, you know, he'll he'll want to be the guy that picks you up from the party at 2am and make sure you're safe and all of that stuff. So he was very good at helping me move house or, you know, he, for instance, when I moved to England, he got my deck sent over to England in a safe because he had a friend who owned a safe company. <laughs> um, so he got them wrapped up in bubble wrap and put in a safe and like, you know, it's just stuff like that. He was always so eager and, and still is so eager to help in, in that kind of practical way. I was incredibly lucky. Um, mm. And also I have, you know, it's really important to say that there's a, there's a huge element in privilege in my story in that my, I went to university in Belfast Yes, I worked all the way through in pubs and sandwich shops and stuff, but my mum helped me pay for my digs. And my dad, when I went to this college course in Farnborough to pursue radio, I did an MA in radio there, he lent me the money for that course, which I then paid him back. So there's no way I could have done that without them, you know? And it's really important to say that publicly, I think, you know, because Mm. it's not always easy for people to go and do these kind of things. Yeah. And uh, they also helped you in a decision you had to make last summer when you were offered an MBE, which we spoke about. And yes. it was a, it was not a foregone conclusion. I was interested. You said that the first thing you did was Google what Irish people turned it down or accepted MBEs. And actually, I had to do a story out of that at the back of it of a story online today. Mm-hmm. And I found all the information you probably found, like Bob Galdoff, obviously, we know, said yes to being a Sir Bob. And the chorus said yes as well. And Terry Wogan, he became a knight and he was actually able to call himself Sir Terry because he got British citizenship yeah. as well. But Sean O'Casey, the playwright, he said, no, thanks very much, even mm-hmm. though he'd been living there for decades. Francis Bacon, the artist, he also said no. Barry McGuigan said no. And then eight years then later said yes. Because yes. yeah. apparently they come back to you. So there might be still a chance for you, Annie McManus, to be Annie MBE. <laughs> but tell us about that decision making process, because... You have been given a great life in England and obviously you really love England and you love the BBC and the fact that you've had all these opportunities. So I was interested that you sat down with your mom and she was really playing a bit of devil's advocate on it. Yeah. So I just like just about that. I I definitely love London. I don't want to I don't know about like England is living in London is very different than living in England. And that's a really important kind of um there's a line there, I think, that's important to, to know. It's the difference between kind of, I suppose, living in New York and living in rural America. I don't know if I would find it so easy to live in um, 
like the home counties as I would in London City. But yeah, so um, I, my initial instinct was to say no, but I also thought I need to really be informed about this and make a decision that's educated and thought through. And I was on holidays in Ireland at the time, so it was really good time just to think it through and see family and talk to them about it. Um, so yeah, so yeah, my mum was just like, she was just like, don't dismiss, you know, don't dismiss it. Like, look what England's done for you. It's given you this amazing job with this really, you know, prestigious British institution. It's allowed you to come in there as an Irish person and really flourish and nourished you in there, which, they, you know, they really did. It's, it's, it's where you met your husband and you've got two beautiful kids. You've got a house there, like you built a life there. Um, so why not allow England to celebrate you in the way England wants to? So that, you know, that was, it was a really valid point. Um, but my point and my problem with the whole MBE system is just the, the language around it. I don't want to be a member of the British Empire. That doesn't feel good to me. That does not make me feel comfortable when you look at the historical context of that. Um, and it's just as simple as that, really. So that's what I said in my reply, which was very polite and thank <laughs> you so much and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not comfortable with the language that you're using here. And if anything changes, let me know. I mean, I, I think it's nice to celebrate people's achievements and a lot of those um, OBEs and MBs and all them things, they, they go to people who are completely unknown, who've done great work in the community or charity work or, you know, work with marginalised people. And that stuff's really, you know, it's great that civilians can be celebrated in that way, but the empire thing doesn't sit well with me. And they wanted, I should say, to to mark your services to radio. And it was, I, I think you were quite honoured to be asked or there was a sense of that, that you understood and appreciated the fact that they they'd, uh singled you out yeah 100%. But it just wasn't for you yeah 100 percent. it's lovely to be to be thought of in that way you know for for radio especially I suppose because my radio career felt like it was over at that point so it was kind of it would have been a lovely way to market and you know but it didn't matter that much in the end I think you know I think they might ask you again in 10 years though Annie maybe you'll change your mind maybe I'll do a Barry McGuigan <laughs> but they, you know, hopefully they'll have changed the language then, made it made it feel a little bit more acceptable to yeah. a, as a person who is from one of the colonised countries. <laughs> well, the thing is, because, you know, you say your sort of DJ or radio thing being over. It certainly isn't. I mean, it's not just flying to America for uh, weddings. You have come up with this amazing new concept called Before Midnight, which is basically for people who used to be out raving and in the clubs, but yeah. now probably have kids and want a good night's sleep as well as going clubbing. And it's really taken off. Tell us about Before Midnight. So, yeah, so it's it, it was it was a very selfish concept in that I <laughs> was finding it harder and harder to DJ in nightclubs and just less. It was just less. It just didn't work for me or for where I was at in my life. And I remember having a conversation with my friend Monkey, who's, who's also a DJ, and she was her her reasoning is different. You know, she's um, in a same sex relationship. She uh, doesn't have any kids, but she's mad for football. She's a football player. And she was just like, I can't play in clubs anymore because I can't get up for the games. So we both had very different reasons for talking about how much we wish that clubbing could happen earlier. And um, I uh, kind of pushed through this idea of doing it as a once-off. And then when I announced it on social media and talked about my reasoning for it, it was such a huge, 
landslide of a reaction. It was kind of quite overwhelming. Um, and then ever since then, it's been, yeah, it's just been every time we've put anything on sale, it just sells out so quickly. There's such a demand for it. And yes, it is for people who need sleep. And I really want to make clear that it's not just for older people, it's for anyone. You know, it's for people who might have to study on Saturdays or have Saturday jobs or who are, um, you know, for whatever reason, don't feel like they want to stay out to three or four in the morning. Maybe they don't feel safe going home at four in the morning. There's so many different reasons. But the majority of people who seem to be coming are those are women, firstly, and women who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s and up who love dance music, love dancing, but just don't feel like there's a place in nightclubbing and the nightclubbing space for them. So what this has kind of inadvertently afforded them is a place where they are seen and heard, which nightclubbing doesn't really do for middle-aged women. Like there's... No. Oh my God. It's like, <laughs> not at all. It's it's seen as a place for young, hip people. But why? Because dance music is, what, 60 years old now. Why, you know, there's there's a whole generation of people who grew up with that, who came up through Acid House, who know their shit, who've got good taste in music, who are being completely ignored. So let's let's serve them. And it's, it's just, it's such a revelation, honestly. And the nights themselves are such a revelation because the crowd are so happy to be there. And there's a real sense of yeah. kindness and upliftment within the crowd that really uplifts me as a DJ. So I feel like I've had this kind of rebirth as a DJ too because the crowd are being older and wiser in a way means that I'm able to play more open and more challenging sets than I've ever, ever played. I don't have to just play the hits. I go on a journey. I play for four hours every time. It feels like a real transaction between me and the crowd, a real exchange. And it's, they lift me up. I give them my best in terms of everything I've learned in DJing. It's just such a buzz. I love it. And, and there's a tour now coming up, a 10-day tour. Yeah, we're kind of the... in the middle of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I just did four shows of that, and I've got more coming up. Um, I think I've got one in Margate and another one in London, but that's been really good. And then we just put this big festival on sale in London, our first ever out of doors before midnight, which is going to be in Finsbury Park in August. Well, now that might be something I might go along to. Actually, I like the idea that it's outside as well. And is it like just one night then? It's or it's, is it a, it's, it's a, a day. It's a day into night. Oh. And it's in this kind of wooded area of Finsbury Park. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it, actually. I think because the weird thing about doing Before Midnight in summer, we haven't had that much of experience of it because we've only launched it last year. But as it's got lighter now and it's really gorgeous evening, it feels weird to be going to a club at half seven, eight and standing in the pitch dark when it's so nice out. So I need, to, I need to think about how, how we do Before Midnight in summer and whether, you know, we do a kind of an outdoor series in the summer and then get it back to inside in winter. And are you coming to Ireland, you are? Yes, I'm, I'm planning on coming back to Ireland in the autumn. I think it's September. We're trying to get those dates locked at the moment. OK, well, now I want to talk to you about cooking, which might seem like a bit of a segue, but okay. I read that you can't cook and your husband can't cook either, which I think is like I'm fascinated by that, first of all. So yeah. how, who, what do you cook your kids for their dinners? Like, what's the story? Are they starting to cook now or what? <laughs> and why can't you cook? Come on, I want to know all of this. Uh, well, I mean, I can, like, I can cook pasta. 
or right. pizza or, but not homemade pizza, like oven pizza. You know, I can make a nice salad. I wouldn't be able to make a soup. I, w- I would maybe blag a stew, but not, it would, I wouldn't trust it. Like, <laughs> I have one thing that I can make, which is macaroni cheese from a recipe that, that is my staple dish. Um, my husband is just, he's just, I mean, it's really, really bad. So I, I can't tell you why. All I know is that we eat quite boring food in our house and I'm really trying to change it. I've just started subscribing to one of these um, food companies where they send you meals, not prepped, but they send you all the ingredients for a meal and they send you a how to cook it. And it's really cool because it means you're you're actually eating vegetables. Like I'm sick of drawers of rotting vegetables in my fridge. Like it's <laughs> constant. So this way... I'm cooking, I feel like I'm actually making a decent meal. But it also really helps my husband to feel more confident as a cook because he's cooking nice meals. He's, he's just getting a proper how-to-do-it, step-by-step guide. So we're going to try and do that more. And I'm hoping that's going to inspire me more as a cook. But um, when I had my radio show at Radio 1, that was six years of me not being there for dinner. So uh, he just blagged it and cooked pasta and pizza and maybe a Spanish omelette on the frying pan, you know, chop fresh vegetables. Um, and that's what they eat. So it's all very basic. And I really would like to change that. Well, it sounds like you're changing it. And, uh, yeah, you know, doing my best. renaissance happening in your house in terms of the cooking. Listen, there has to be some things you look forward to growing old. So one of, I want to get into wine. I want to get into cooking. And I want to get into gardening. Those three things. I just haven't had the chance yet. Well, you're, you're getting there. And listen, tell me about this macaroni cheese recipe because I heard there's four cheeses in it, which is very exciting. Yeah. So it's this company called Annie Mays or Anna Mays and it's called the Annie Mac. They've named it after oh, me. You have a macaroni cheese named after I know. You. And they, is, they bring it to all the festivals. That's they better have... than an MBE. Sorry, I'm not funny. <laughs> it is better than an MBE, in my opinion. Um, it's really good. Like it's Monterey Jack, it's mozzarella, it's Parmesan, it's cheddar. And loads of English mustard. It's banging. Where will we get this recipe? Because now everyone's going to want to make it. I think it. if you look at, on, look at it online, may I send you a link after this and you can okay. put it in your show Do notes. Do put it up on our socials. Yeah, so it's Anna, Anna, A-N-N-A, Anna, May, M-A-E. Anna May's macaroni cheese. And it's the Annie Mac. It's a classic. I'm the classic Mac, apparently. They actually they actually provided catering at our wedding, Anna May's, because I love their macaroni cheese so much. They came and brought a van which is very kind of them. It's not the best wedding food, though. Macaroni, cheese, everyone hammered, Everyone's trying slobbering to suck into their them. outfits yeah. as well, trying to put their spanks on and yeah. everything. <laughs> um, you had quite a low-key wedding, did you? I got married in Ibiza, um, yeah, with just 50 people. But that wasn't low-key, probably. Or was um, no, it was very low-key. And then we had a big old London party for all the people that weren't able to come to Ibiza. So that was the non-low-key bit. And that was when the macaroni cheese van came. Okay, no, I think macaroni cheese at a wedding is is goals, definitely. Um, so tell us about now the the book. You're in the publicity sort of for it. Um, yeah, it's it's out in the world. You've had a lovely review in the Guardian, which is really nice, and you're going to launch it in Ireland too. So yeah, it's out today. I did the audio book too for the first time I've ever done that. That was strange, but but cool. And then um, a week today, we will have a little low key launch in Dublin. Um, because I love a party, any excuse. So we're going to have a, li- a few drinks in Dublin as well and celebrate it there as well. 
Brilliant. And what about your next book then? Or are you having a little pause? Having a pause, Roisin. My, my main <laughs> aim for next book is to not rush and to just take my time and think. And so from here to the le- rest of the year, I would really like to just, yeah, just really think about what I want to write and how I want to write it and um, maybe start planning it and maybe start reading around it and researching it, but do no writing until next year. That's, I really want to stick to that. I think it's important and I hope that I'll write a better book for it. Well, the book is brilliant. It's called The Mess We're In. I really enjoyed it. And I think even if you haven't been that young person going to London, it's so immersive and fun and action packed and the characters are great. Uh, so well done on it. And Thank you, Roisin. Good luck with the all the... When's the launch in Maggie's Bar then? It's it's today. It's tonight. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. lots of Tato, lots, lots of Guinness. Lots of Tato, lots of Guinness. We've got a great trad band. A girl called Lisa Canny. She's amazing. She's a harpist and a banjo player. She's going to come and bring some players. And the hope is that it will turn into a hoolie and go all the way through the night and have a really, we'll have a fun time. Well, no doubt it will. To have the best time in Maggie's Bar and uh, we'll you. talk to you again, definitely. But well done on the book. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is all we have time for. The book is The Mess We're In and it's out today. And by the way, I couldn't find that recipe for the Annie Mac macaroni cheese. But I think the main point is that it has three different cheeses in it. So hopefully you can recreate it if you're a mac and cheese fan. And really, would you trust anyone who wasn't a mac and cheese fan? Tell us uh, your mac and cheese recipes and anything else by emailing us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. We're on social at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Breen and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, and I will talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.